This morning we're going to be back in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We uh, left off in chapter 5 last week right in the middle of one of Jesus' longest discussions that John records for us. One of the most extended times of teaching or talking that we, where we get Jesus in. And what we said last week is, this is one of the primary examples that we have of what Jesus said that ended up getting Jesus killed. The things that he said to the people he spoke to got him killed. We want to understand why. What is it about Jesus that makes him such a polarizing figure? What we said was, you can't read what Jesus is saying here. You can't read what Jesus is saying here and not come away convinced either that Jesus was crazy and even dangerous or convinced that he is the Lord who made you, who has a right to everything that you have, a Lord to whom you must submit with all that you are, one or the other. The context for this text is a controversy that Jesus was having with some religious leaders uh, of his day over what can be done on the Sabbath. Jesus has healed somebody. It's on the Sabbath. It was their holy day. It was a day that they set aside to do nothing uh, as a way of even establishing who they were as a people. We are not like other peoples because we practice the Sabbath. No one is bigger than that. You don't get to change that rule. And Jesus did. He did something that violated their standards. So they come at him. Who do you think you are? Jesus' words don't comfort them. They, don't assure, they do not assure them. Jesus' words are essentially a claim to be the God who made the Sabbath and who is working this day and every day. Last week what we looked at, what we unpacked together was this, this fundamental claim Jesus makes to be the God of creation. This week, we unpack the second part of what he said to those he spoke with that day. And in this second part, he tries to offer them evidence for his claims. So he's claimed to be God. They get that. They don't like it. He offers them reasons they should believe. He doesn't expect them to believe him just because he said it. He expects them to believe because there are good reasons to believe. Evidence is important. He presents it here. But more than that, here's the thing we're going to unpack today together. More than that, he wants to explain why they don't believe, even though they have good reasons to believe. Even though they have seen and heard enough to accept this word about who Jesus is, they don't. And Jesus wants to explain why. So for us, what we're doing today is we're trying to, we're trying to read this passage as a warning against unbelief. And I, don't, I don't know if belief comes hard for you. I think it comes hard for everybody at one time or another. But if it's hard for you right now, either because you're evaluating Jesus for the first time or because... You've considered yourself a Christian for a long time, but now maybe you're wrestling through the implications of what it is to believe in Jesus. If belief is hard for you this morning, this passage we're going to unpack gives you reasons to believe that I think should, should encourage you, but it also warns you to be critical of something in yourself that might be holding you back from full confidence in what Jesus has said. What we want to understand is why you can't believe if you can't believe in Jesus. And then from that, we want to understand positively how you can believe in Him. What it would take for you to believe in Him. That's where His, his, his words point us this morning. I, I want to start by reading the passage, though. Let's get His words out there. Let's hear them as they were. And then we'll unpack them together. Now I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me, please, in honor of God's Word while I read from John chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to read verses 30 to 47 this morning. 
Hear the word of the Lord. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I received is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that, that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, His form you've never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I think the main burden of this passage is to explain to us why you can't believe in Jesus. Why you can't believe in Jesus. We want to come away with a clear sense of what might be going on in us, in our hearts, when we struggle to believe in Him. One of the, one of the most important things we've noticed so far in John, this, this was back in chapter 3, and, and it comes back up again here in this passage is that you believe what you want to believe. You believe what you want to believe. I think we tend to think about ourselves as sort of blank slates, right? Who receive evidence of something and we kind of weigh that evidence, we evaluate it, and we make a decision based on it. Jesus gives us, I think, a more balanced view of what it is like to know something. Jesus is giving, him, giving His hearers evidence for the claims He's made about being the Son of the Father who is one with the Father, who is Himself God. He's giving them evidence. And Jesus says, there at the beginning, we just read this, that if He alone bears witness about Himself, well, then His testimony may not be true. Don't believe me just because I said it's true. Let me tell you reasons you should believe in me. What he's claiming is what we kind of all know, I think intuitively, is that we, we want confirmation for something. Anybody can say he's anybody. I want to know why I should believe what you say is true. And Jesus goes there. He's happy to provide it. In fact, where he goes in, this, in these next few verses is to three categories of evidence that 
most of us would look to to believe anything. Three main categories of evidence that all of us appeal to, not just for knowledge about Jesus, but, but we look to for knowledge about just about anything. The first category is what other humans that we trust say to us. Testimony from other people. You know, if somebody tells you that a restaurant is really good and you have enjoyed their recommendations before, you can trust their testimony. It's true. They've proven to be, in the way that John the Baptist was here, a sort of burning lamp that you rejoice in their light, right? When they shine light onto a new restaurant and you go and, it, and it's good, it is what they claim, you trust them going forward. That's the first thing Jesus points to. You had John. He was great. John the Baptist was a guy who you liked. The Jews sent to him earlier in, in what we've read to find out who he was and they were pretty happy with his answer. He wasn't trying to be too big for his britches. He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm just telling you. I'm just pre- preparing the way. Don't look at me. They liked that. They liked the guy who was serious about his faith. Jesus is saying, that guy that you like, he was pointing to me. So you can believe based on his testimony. It's a human testimony. That's one kind. But then Jesus says, that's not enough. I don't just, I don't just claim that, that men speak about me. There's another who speaks about me. There's another. The next thing is the works that Jesus is doing. Works that are ultimately from his Father, he says. The last passage we looked at last week, he's talking about how he doesn't do anything by himself. What he does is what the Father tells him to do. In a sense, what he does is what the Father does. So you look at what he does to see God. If God wants to confirm that Jesus is who he claims to be, God gives him works to do that will prove it to you. So here are the category of evidence, not just testimony from another human, but what you might call things that you can see, or empirical evidence, what you can weigh that's observable, right? Jesus says, don't just believe because John told you. Look, what do you see? Look at these works. Who could do these things that I'm doing unless the Father sent him? Think about the signs that we've, that we've already considered earlier in John. The things like the words that he's spoken about the temple, or like the fact that a, a, a paralytic, someone paralyzed for 38 years, Jesus speaks to him and he's healed on the spot. Who does that? Right? That speaks to him. I think for you, sitting here this morning, not able to see Jesus doing those signs, I think the, the resurrection of Jesus falls in this category of a sign, something you can weigh. Ev- there's evidence out there, just like for any other historical event, that, you can, that is accessible to you right now where you sit. And Jesus is saying, look at the works that I do, including my death and my resurrection. Who could do that? Weigh that evidence. But then there's, there's a third category, and this is the one that Jesus really wants us to connect with. Jesus says, beyond the works that, the Father, that bear witness that the Father has sent me, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. You may not have seen him, you may not have heard him, but you have heard from him. It's the scriptures Jesus points them in verse 39 to the scriptures saying that they bear witness about him. And then later in verse 45 and 46, he says, Moses, the one that you love, he was ultimately writing about me. What Jesus is saying is that the Bible is where God speaks. You want to know if I am who I am, who I claim to be? You have to go to the scriptures. You have to go to them carefully. You have to read them with an open mind and an open heart and see what happens. See if God doesn't testify to you that I am who I claim to be. The Bible, more than, more, than even, more than even Him speaking a word and healing a man. More than that, the Bible is where you find out if I am who I claim to be. Isn't that shocking? We would kind of put that probably on the lowest, the lowest end of the totem pole, right? That, that these, these, these written words 
pale in comparison to what we might could see. If we'd just been alive and we could see Jesus do that, we would believe in him. He's saying, no, huh? They saw it. A lot of ways that that could have gone. A lot of things that could have explained that paralytic getting healed. You shouldn't believe me just because of that. You should read the scriptures and they testify about me. Now, before we go any further, just as an aside, again, I want to address you this morning. If you're someone for whom belief is coming hard right now, because you're evaluating Jesus and you aren't sure whether you have enough evidence to commit to him or because you're a believer in Jesus but your faith is weak right now and you're, you're wavering, you're not sure you have enough, enough confidence in him, enough reasons to believe. The first question I think you should ask yourself is, have I taken myself to the places where God speaks about Jesus? Have I truly, fully considered the kinds of evidence that he's left of himself? Have I looked to testimony, not just of John, but of friends around me whose lives I see? The ones whose lives are in my life, are in my life, like a, a burning lamp, testifying to something. Have I, have I given what they've said about Christ a, a full, the full weight that it deserves? Have I looked into the historical evidence for Jesus, for the things that he claims he did? It's there. Have you really looked at it? Have you gone to the scriptures? Don't make the mistake I did early on when I, in one of my first bouts with, sort of with, with doubt about my faith and, and wrestling through whether or not I could trust in Jesus. I remember distinctly feeling like I couldn't go to the Bible until I was sure the Bible had something to say to me. Until I was sure it actually came from God, I couldn't get anything out of it. That, that is not true. That is a bad instinct. Suppress that in yourself if you're feeling that. Go to it to see what might be there. Because in the Bible, God speaks. And thousands of years worth of Christians have testified to that fact. It's alive. It is not a normal book. You will meet him there if you go there with an open heart and in prayer. So have you weighed the evidence? I just wanted to mention that before we move forward. But we need to move forward because Jesus is writing to people here who had weighed it. They had heard John. They had seen Jesus do incredible things. And they, had, they knew the scriptures better than anybody else. Maybe better than anybody else in the history of the world. Their whole lives were given to studying the scriptures. And they did not believe Jesus when he said that he was the son of God. So why? That's Jesus' main concern here. To explain why they've seen what they've seen and still not believed. To explain to you why you may have seen what you have seen and still not believed. Why did they miss the point and why might you miss the point? Not necessarily for laziness or for apathy. That was not their, that was not their sin. Why they miss the point, why you may miss the point, according to Jesus, is rooted in love. It's rooted in love. It's rooted in the fact, verse 40 says, that they refused to come to him. They'd seen all this evidence and they did not want to come to Jesus. The problem was in the affections of their heart and what their heart wanted and did not want. Now, we talked about this earlier, a, couple we- a few weeks back. We, we talked about the fact that, that this passage and I think human experience tell us that we aren't just minds that think about things and then make wise decisions about them. But we know things through not just the mind, but our bodies, through our affections, through our experiences that color how things look to us, through 
through what our culture that we're a part of loves. All of this aims our affections, and our affections affect how we know what we know. They affect what we think is true, what seems plausible to us. I've been reading this book slowly, a really good book called The Righteous Mind by a guy who's kind of a sociologist, kind of a philosopher, but writing for a popular audience. And the the book is trying to explain how good people could be so divided from each other on things like religion and politics. Because if our minds were were just sort of detached, thinking things that weigh evidence and then make decisions, then you would think we could all come to some sort of agreement. You know, if we're good people and we're just sort of cool thinkers, then we ought to be able to read the same stuff and then decide, yeah, that's a great way to handle the healthcare problems in our country. Let's all just find consensus and do that thing. But that isn't the way it works, right? We come to deeply held, passionate views that are opposite from each other. Why is that? And one of his... One of his insights, one of the things that's helpful about the book is he kind of gives you a a sense of how different people through history have thought about how we come to know things, how we come to believe the things that we believe, and how some of the earliest uh, writers who have influenced us in the way we think about ourselves, the early Greek writers, they tended to think about the minds as things that were in control of your passions. So I think the image he uses is of like a chariot. So your mind and your reason is the chariot driver and the passions are the horses. And they're wild, but you can control them, right? You have to control them. They're dangerous. But the mind has that power. Where I think what, what other philosophers and what I think human experience bears out and what Jesus is claiming here is that it's kind of the other way around as often as not. That your mind is in service to the things you want to believe. The things you already love, you go, the heart has, goes and finds reasons to go along with what it loves. They didn't come to Jesus because they weren't just... They weren't just objective, neutral, blank slates weighing the evidence. They wanted something. And Jesus did not fit what they wanted. They refused to believe in him. That's what Jesus says. So what was it that they were wanting that was inconsistent with Jesus? That when they heard him, they rejected him. What do they want? What might we want if we're struggling to believe in Jesus? That's the main thing Jesus is trying to expose in this text. It's in verses 41 to 44. This is his main point. Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people, but you do not have the love of God within you. In other words, you don't love God. I have come in my Father's name. If you loved God, you would love that about me. But you don't receive me. You would, you would get it if somebody else came in his own name. You understand the guy trying to rally an army behind himself. That would sound like you. That would be familiar. But a guy who comes just trying to reflect the Father, because you don't love the Father, you're not going to want that guy. How can you believe, he says, when you receive... This is the key. Verse 44. Highlight this one. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe when what you want is the praise and respect of other people around you more than you want the praise and the respect of God. I'm not sure exactly what it is Jesus is referring to here, where this showed up in them. It could be that he's talking about how they've searched the Scriptures he talked about they've given their life to it. They search the scriptures all the time, thinking there's life there. Maybe they think, 
the reason the scriptures are valuable is that it gives them some sort of special leg up on those who don't know the scriptures. That by their knowledge of it, by their sort of integral uh, understanding of its details, by their, by their rigorously held positions that they can defend, they're set apart from everybody else. Maybe that's what they think. Rather than seeing what the scriptures are there to expose, rather than seeing Jesus. Have you known folks like that? Love to show what they know about the Bible? Have you been that person? Maybe it was their law keeping. Maybe they were, maybe what they wanted, the way that they sought glory from each other, the way that they thought the world's problems could get solved, was through being very faithful to obey laws. He said, he points them back to Moses. He says, You have hung your hopes on Moses. And instead of seeing that Moses talked about me, you've used Moses for your own purposes. Maybe because Moses gave all these regulations, maybe they were following the regulations, hoping that people would see how good they were at obeying Moses' laws and would praise them. But I think Jesus' main focus so far through John has been their craving for signs. They have always wanted Jesus to do things that show himself to be powerful. And Jesus said earlier in the the chapter just before this one that you won't believe anything unless you see signs And what we've been unpacking about that idea is that what they want is to be on the ground floor of something awesome. They want to be with him in power. They want a place in the administration of this new world that they hope he's come to bring. They want to ride on his coattails up the ladder to the top rungs of society. They're hoping he is going to clean house from the Romans, install his own kingdom, and that they would be at his right hand. That's why they wanted signs. Signs were their ticket to a new and better life through Jesus' power. They want, to tra- they want to attach themselves to something that's going to be attractive and respectable and powerful. That when people look at them and see, oh, you're with that guy, they'll win respect. Some things never change, right? Humans, all of us, through all of time, We are relentless self-promoters. All of us are locked in on what's been called self-justification. We all do this. What we're trying to do is establish ourselves as, as unique, as important, as worthwhile, as accomplished, as having risen above the sort of mundane existence of everyone else. In our own subtle ways, we all do it. And one of the surest ways to get this sense that we are justified, that our lives matter, one of the best ways to get that sense is when other people tell you it's true. When other people praise you. When other people acknowledge, oh, you are not like everybody else. This is amazing, this thing that you do, this thing that you're good at. We know we're okay when others tell us it's true. We want to attach ourselves to things that win respect. All of us do it. Here's one example from popular culture that really stuck out to me last month. I didn't watch the Oscars, but I watched some of it. And I read, about, I read some of the coverage after it. I don't know if you guys watched it. One of the main themes this year was a sort of celebration of gay rights. And I think that's partly because the, the host for the Oscars this year was Ellen DeGeneres, one of the first Hollywood celebrities to come out. Also because one of the main movies that was up for awards focused on issues in the same-sex community, uh, in, in the gay and lesbian community, especially the um, AIDS with Dallas Buyers Club. 
So there was, there was a lot of celebration, public ceremony, uh, uh, celebrating gay rights. But I read this, uh, this editorial in the New York Times afterwards, that next week, uh, by a writer called Alessandra Stanley, that called out the Hollywood industry for being late to the party. This was interesting to me. I don't follow Hollywood closely enough to have known this was true, but it was a very interesting article. Here's what she said. This is a quote. Hollywood is so righteous suddenly about gay rights. And that's a little puzzling because for so long, movies were part of the problem. Professional basketball has its first openly gay player, Jason Collins. But it's still hard to think of romantic leads, male or female, who are A-list Hollywood movie stars and also openly gay. When stars talk about their solidarity with gay people, they can sound a little like the French describing the resistance during World War II. There were some heroes, but the vast majority collaborated. Despite what many conservatives maintain, Hollywood doesn't set the social agenda. This is the key. More often, it timidly trails the culture, then belatedly buys in and turns up the music. And what's this author claiming? I don't think the author is claiming that the concern displayed during the Oscars was not sincere. I think it probably was sincere. What the author is claiming is that at the very least, at the very least, these celebrations were convenient. At the very least, they were self-promoting. It's a far... What we saw at the Oscars that night, this author is claiming, I think it's spot on. What we saw that night was a far cry from courageous or costly. Just the opposite. Saying what was the things that were said that night, those things boost your Twitter followers. They don't cost you opportunities. When Jared Leto, I think was his name, gave his moving speech and told people all across the world, if you have ever been ostracized, or condemned because of who you love. I stand with you and for you here tonight. It might have been a sincere speech, but he didn't lose anything. It was no more courageous than buying a shirt at J. Crew or buying your porch furniture at Pottery Barn. You do those things because you know people like that stuff. You know that's not a risky move. You know it's going to win you popularity, not cost you popularity. But there is tremendous psychological reward that comes from believing popular beliefs about what makes for a good life, about what threatens that good life, for identifying bigotry in other people, for putting yourself on the inside of the future. All of us want to attach ourselves to something great. And Jesus is saying that if what we want is respect or approval from other people, we will never attach ourselves to Jesus. For one thing, to attach yourself to Jesus because you want approval from somebody else is always going to keep your faith in a sort of infant stage and susceptible to failure. Now, I, I have been a living example of this in my history. When, I've, when I have struggled to believe in Jesus, when I've struggled to wrestle with intellectual doubt, what I've learned after years of struggling 
is that almost in every case, what's thrown me off, what makes me feel unsure and unsafe, is my fear that I can't defend what I believe to someone who doesn't share that belief in a way that will make that person think that I'm smart. My fear that maybe I don't believe well enough to keep from getting backed into a corner that I can't get out of. So, so, so Jesus is giving me language for understanding what's going on in me. I'm doubting because what I want, really, is the respect of other people. And I know that I can't get that by the way that I defend Jesus. And therefore, they might look down on me. They might think I'm not smart because I believe in Him rather than the other way around. And if what I want is the approval of other people, I'm never going to believe in Jesus. Never going to have a stable faith. It might work while I live in rural Alabama where everyone shares my convictions. But when I go into a secular environment, when I show up in graduate school, when I could be labeled foolish for what labeled me as, as intelligent and popular in another context, my faith goes away if all I care about is the, the respect of other people. So it, has, it undermines faith, but there's even more than that. Jesus just isn't offering you the respect and fame that you want from somebody else. That just isn't, on, on the face of it, that just isn't what he's offering. And, and the Pharisees, the Jews that he was speaking to, they knew that. They got it. What they wanted was signs that could encourage them that if they, if they throw in with Jesus, if they stake themselves there, then what they'll find at the end of their life is that they are insiders to a new world. That's what they want. But Jesus, he doesn't come trying to, to amplify their portfolio of what makes them great. Jesus comes as their Lord, calling on them to submit. He says, I... I, I am the Word. It's essentially what he's claiming. I am the one who has made all that is, who, who works even as my Father is working. I am one with the Father. He's making all these claims that mean you submit to me. He's not here to be part of your portfolio. He's here to own you. Later on, chapter 15, Jesus shows no concern for approval of other people. And he promises in John chapter 15 that all those who, who follow me, they're going to get what I got and worse. You're not going to be celebrated. You're going to be killed if you follow Jesus. And maybe hanging over all of it, the reason that, that, that Jesus is not compatible with our desire to win fame from other people is that Jesus tells us, you are so far in and of yourself, you are so far removed from having any quality that is worthy of praise, that to get you redeemed, what it took was God Himself coming to you to live a perfect life that you should have lived, to die a death that you should die, and to rise again for you so that you can live. You are so far gone that what you need is not, is not some teaching that's going to help you take control of your life. What you need is someone to die for you because that is how bad off you are on your own. Now that just doesn't, that doesn't build up our ego, right? That is a worst case scenario for us if what we really want is the approval of other people. How can we believe, Jesus says, if what we want is the approval of others instead of the approval of God? We can't. But we can believe. How you can believe in Jesus, I think, is pretty clearly displayed for us 
as an implication of what Jesus has said. Now, we've spent most of our time this morning talking about the warning here because that's the emphasis here. He's warning you, don't do what they are doing. Do not reject Jesus because what you want is to look good to other people. But I think if we turn around, if we sort of pry under or turn around what he's saying, we get a positive view of what it would, what it would mean for us to believe in Jesus. How, what would have to be true about us for us to see Jesus as something beautiful, to be drawn in by him rather than put off by him, to avoid the error of the Pharisees? I, I want to, in the last few minutes here, point you in that direction. Again, we have to kind of pry into the details of the text. On the surface of it, it's a warning, but there's hope in it if we look closely. It starts with the love for God. Jesus told them, essentially what he's told them here, we've traced this out, is that they didn't love God. He knew that they didn't love God because they didn't receive Jesus. So the implication is, if they loved God, they would have loved and embraced Jesus too. You guys with me? You willing to accept that? They didn't receive Jesus because they don't love God. If you love God, then Jesus would be something that looked wonderful to you. You would love Jesus. But why? Next he goes to glory. You don't receive Jesus because what you want is glory from each other. If you had wanted, by implication, if what you'd wanted is glory from God, then Jesus would have been like a drink of cool water to someone in the desert. You would have received him. If what you want is the approval and praise and respect of God, Jesus is for you. The main way to believe in Jesus, the necessary condition for faith, is a love for God and for His approval. Now, here's what I think this means. Remember that Jesus says here, in this text, what Jesus says is that all the Scriptures, they're all about me. You want to see me, you've got to look to the Scriptures, even Moses. I want to give you one example that will help us understand and connect with this point. If you're going to receive Jesus, what's got to be true about you is you've got to love what God thinks about you more than you love what other people thinks about you. Think about you. You, you. you have got to love his approval of you more than you love others' approval of you. Okay, with me so far? Now we're unpacking why that's the case. Jesus says the scriptures are, the what, are, are what prepare you to see that. So how? Where? Let me give you one example. The man after God's own heart, David. David, the psalmist, gives us some of the Bible's clearest reflections on what it is to long for, for him. And I think prepare us to expect and receive Jesus and what he brings. And David's concern, one of his concerns is that he be one with God. Think about, think about the psalmist saying things like, things like, my soul yearns for you like a deer yearns for the water. Why? Why is he missing what, what he wants so badly? Psalm, I'm gonna, I want to point you to Psalm 24 and Psalm 51, two of David's psalms. In Psalm 24, David says, what does it take to get into your presence? I'm summarizing here. What does it take to get in your presence? I know that's where, that's where I'll be satisfied. That's what I long for, to be with the God who made me for himself. But how can I be in his presence? Well, what it takes, what it takes are clean hands and a pure heart. That's what it takes. What it takes is to be one who doesn't lift up their soul to something false. For someone who doesn't swear deceitfully. It is this person who is pure and clean in whom God's soul delights. It is this person that will receive blessing. The same man who wrote that wrote Psalm 51. Psalm 51 he wrote after he had just sinned in a terrible, terrible, irreversible way. 
He wrote it after he had committed adultery with another man's wife, then had that man killed to cover his tracks. And he gets what my soul needs above all is the presence of God. What the presence and what the pleasure of God with me demands is clean hands and a pure heart. I am unclean. Psalm 51 is his confession of all that he's done. And so he's crying out to God and he's saying, purify me, wash me and I will be clean. Don't take your spirit away from me. Do not turn from me. Be pleased in me. How is it possible? You're going to have to do it. He knows what it takes to get in God's presence. He knows that he has not given what it takes. David's soul is ready for a savior. Now what, what we see in David, what we see in David is that it is right to yearn to please God, to love what God loves. And it's right to see yourself as unclean, as one who cannot clean themselves. You cannot earn the approval from God that you were made to enjoy. So how can we be clean? How can we be pleasing to Him? When this is what you want, friends, this is it. When this is what you want, the approval and acceptance of the God that you were made to please, when that is what you want above all, and when you crave it because you know you haven't done it and you can't, then when you hear about Jesus, your soul melts into love for Him. Because when this is what you want and you hear Him describing the sign that He gave at the wedding of Cana, John chapter 2, that He came filling up jars that had been for purification with the wine of a wedding feast. You know what Jesus is promising you is that through His blood, He will make you clean and pure. The delight of your bridegroom's eye, He will make you ready. When you see him promising in his sign in the temple that he will now be the place, through him you will be able to meet with the God who made you. He is promising you, in me, God is pleased with you and he loves to receive you. And when he gets to the night before his death, when he prays for his children, the night before he gives his life for them, this is what he prays. In John chapter 17, he prays, the glory, the acclaim, the praise, the approval that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Do you get what that promise is? Jesus has earned the approval, the pleasure of God that you were made to to enjoy and now he gives it to you as a gift so when God looks at you he is pleased with you because he is pleased with his son and you are one with him that promise is true friends believe it here's what this means it means that your desire to to please the craving you have for approval that's not wrong That's not off base. It's just misdirected. The problem is that you have settled on the approval of other people, which is incomplete, which is shifting, which you can lose at any time. And that leaves you 
crushed by failure. It leaves you proud when you think you've won it, but always leaves you insecure. Always. That desire for approval is misdirected, not wrong. You were made to seek the approval of the God who made you. And one of my favorite passages in all of Christian literature that points to the beauty of this truth, that this is what we were made for, it isn't wrong to want to please, and this is what Jesus gives us, comes from a sermon by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. I want to set it up, read it, and, and close there. In the weight of glory, he, he begins with a personal confession of, of just how he struggled to see glory as a good thing. I mean, he reads about glory and the fact that we're going to get glory in the New Testament. It just doesn't do anything for him. It's, like, it's some, such a churchy word. Like, I, I just don't understand what it would be like to receive glory. That's where he starts. And the, the, the closest thing he could come to what it would mean to receive glory is that it would mean to be famous, to receive praise. And he said, that, that's wrong. We're not supposed to want that. Isn't that inconsistent with humility, Lewis says? But then he realized that Jesus tells us to, to believe. You've got to have the faith of a child. Well, what's true of children? What's true of children? Lewis says he realized that, I'm quoting now, what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures. Nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior the pleasure of a beast before men, of a dog that wants to please its owner. The pleasure of a child before its father, a pupil before its teacher, a creature before its creator. Now he's not forgetting here how quickly this desire can turn to deadly poison, what he calls the poison of self-admiration. But, and this is where I want to close. I want to read this to you and close. He says, he continues... I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment, before this happened, before, before the desire to please turns to self-admiration. A short moment during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased Him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. With no taint of what we should now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us, that any of you who so choose shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. Father, we don't deserve your approval. 
and we have rejected it in favor of the approval of others time and time again. But we know there is nothing in our experience that has satisfied us. And we know, we trust your word tells us that the reason is that we weren't made to be satisfied by anything else. We want to be pleasing to you. We want hearts that want to be pleasing to you. So shape us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.